0: Hello, Slate Money listeners. Felix here. Guess what? This is the craft beer episode that we've been talking about for so long. It finally happened. We recorded it at Union Hall in Brooklyn. It was a huge amount of fun. I hope you enjoy it. So as a little present from me to you on New Year's Eve, enjoy the podcast and stay safe out there tonight. The following podcast contains explicit language. Brooklyn in Union Hall, not actually live, this was recorded a couple of weeks ago, but we are in Brooklyn, <laughs> we are drinking beer, we are talking about craft beer. This is Slate Money, I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm here to talk all about craft beer all night with some amazing guests. We do have the entire Slate Money crew here, First and foremost, the one and only Kathy O'Neill, yeah. Yeah. author of Weapons of Mass Destruction, and generally the best person in the world. We also have Slate's Money Box columnist and general Slate Money sidekick, Jordan
1: Wiseman. I, my official title on the show is Chopped Liver, apparently.
0: Jordan is the. Is seriously the guy who made this entire show happen who cares about craft beer we are going to be talking about craft beer what it is why it is what's happened to it the whole reason why we've managed to devote an entire episode of slate money to it we're going to talk about whether it makes any sense from a business perspective now that everyone and their mother is drinking beer and making beer. And we are also going to be talking about the regulatory aspect of things, which honestly is not boring. Stick around for that, because it's kind of the most interesting bit. But first, we need to get the uh first two amazing special guests on stage. Now, I'm pretty sure you've heard of um Harpoon Brewery, because you're all beer nerds. And so we have... The uh CEO of Harpoon Brewery, whose name is Dan Canary. Come on out.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Dan, you, you um you founded and own and generally are responsible for this operation. To some extent, absolutely, yes. Many years ago, thirty years ago we started Harpoon. And um and on top of that, we have Steve Hindi of Brooklyn Brewery, right here in Brooklyn. Woo! in Williamsburg. Steve Steve is is um, not only a beer maker, but also used to be an AP war correspondent.
3: It was good training for starting a brewery in Brooklyn.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is this is basically the last bit of of, of um, me taking up space on the stage is I am I have in my hand here a pint of Brooklyn Lager. Now cheers. I yeah. am a I am a wine drinker, as I say, I know nothing about beer. What do I do? How do I drink
1: this? You, you, you say cheers fun. and you do I this, yeah, like
3: the same
0: way. Uh, you and what am I? What wine. am I looking for? Am I am I sniffing? Well, you okay? You might you might
3: take a look at it. You might uh, sniff it a little, and then you would drink it. <laughs>
0: So we don't really stand on ceremony here in the yeah. beer world.
3: No, we're in <laughs> Brooklyn.
0: We don't spit it out either. It tastes good, I have to say. I mean, I, oh, I I don't want to sound surprised about this because there must be a reason why why everyone likes beer. But um, well, it's got a kind of citrusy tang to it.
3: Yeah, that's the hops.
0: That ah, see now I'm learning something. That hops being one of your, the a flowering
3: uh, plant that uh, seasons the beer.
0: Okay, so I'm so out of my depth already, but I'm going to try and barrel through this. This is, a, this is what is known as a craft beer. Right. What is a craft beer and how is it different from anything which isn't a
1: craft beer? This is actually sort of an existential question. I'm really curious. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I'm really curious.
0: Do you want to
3: tackle that one?
1: No, I, I'm going to be quiet this episode, like I said. <laughs> but go.
0: <laughs> and, and can I tell just by drinking it that it's a craft beer? Well, if yes. There's something sh- which I just did. If I, if I knew about beer, I'd be. Ooh, that's a craft beer.
3: Well, you, probably eighty percent of the beer drunk in America today is light lager beer, and if you took the top 10 brands of light lager beer and put them on a a table without any kind of identification, you might have difficulty distinguishing one from the other. But craft beer has flavor. It has color, it has flavor, it has aroma, and it's very distinctive. And uh, you can tell one from the other.
0: Okay, so the first hint I have that I'm drinking a craft beer is it tastes of
3: something. Yes,
4: I'm going to jump in and ask why do the big beer companies like Miller, Budweiser, why do they make such tasteless beers? What, why, why does 80% how is that optimizing not, anything?
0: How how yeah? It, it, because we're economists here, and we kind of think to ourselves, you know, that if you if I'm drinking beer, wouldn't it be obvious I want to taste something? Maybe not.
3: Well, uh, they make beer for the masses. The masses so they don't want to taste. That. Uh, The vast majority of people don't like flavor in beer. They prefer a a more tasteless kind of product. And obviously, they've gotten a long way with that. But we've really beat them back over the last 30 years. When I started Brooklyn Brewery and Dan started, uh, imports were 2% of the US market. 98% of the beer drunk in America was that light lager beer. Today, imports have grown to like 15%. Craft beer is about 15%. And so we push the light lager people way back. So okay, I, no, wait, next
0: question. I have another stupid question. All right. Because, that's because your last one. Jordan, no, Jordan <laughs> has an entire segment of intelligent questions, but I, have a, I this is my moment to ask stupid questions. First stupid question. Um, the imports. If I'm drinking Stella or Heineken or corona are those not exactly the same tasteless light lager beers that the americans make dan
2: well uh <laughs> i would not use the term tasteless because you know to their credit the made these ma- major brewers brewed a very high quality standards it's just the styles are all very similar and we many years ago really were very frustrated there was such a lack of choice but Yes. The answer to your question, they're all light yellow lagers. You go around the world, that is by far and away the lead style around the world. So consumers clearly have a real preference for light lagers, but not all consumers. And what we saw all those years ago was, you know, you went to Europe and you could still find all different kinds of styles of beer. And you came back to the US and it was not, there was no choice at all. So, the pendulum had swung way, way too far, and our job really as pioneers in the industry was to say I'm, this I'm gonna is gonna out of control. I'm going to jump in here We're and say, say that, that my favorite
0: light yellow lager, because you, you're allowed to like that, aren't you? My favorite y- light yellow lager is um, Red Stripe because it comes in a, like, a fun-shaped <laughs> bottle and the slogan and the slogan is Hooray Beer, okay, which so, is just an awesome slogan uh, for a, uh, for lager. Note, so... <laughs>
1: <laughs> for the love of god when you were in jamaica yeah, you, yeah. anyway <laughs> it's triumph of marketing but so it has never been cheap to start a brewery right and you know you guys i mean you're going on 30 years and you're about 2 years older than i mean dan you've been doing this for 30 years you're about 2 years older than brooklyn brewery um when you were just launching how did you make the case to people that there was any future in this when there was very little market for anything but fizzy yellow lager i'm curious like what was your pitch to people who were going to invest
2: it was a very steep learning curve people had no idea basically what we were trying to do i mean you had urban enclaves where people you know folks had traveled and then maybe they liked guinness or bass ale from england or whatever so they they were willing to experiment but you really—it was a, 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 explaining to them that beer was not just light yellow lagers. That was a real education thing. That it could be something very, very different. All right, and so getting into our to breweries was the key part of it—to kind of meet us and see what we were doing and having fun drinking beer. Okay, with
3: so yeah, it—it it, it was a real struggle in the beginning. I I remember a lot of very depressing nights in Bud bars here in Brooklyn, trying to get. Bud drinkers to try Brooklyn Lager. What did you tell them? What did you well, say? I, I said. Okay, you do know, this to me right now. I'm, I'm here. I'm. I'm oh, about Yeah. I'm a drink. I'm drinking
0: drinkers. this. <laughs> so the first thing I the first thing I will I will note is that you call it lager. Now you know as an Englishman I think well you have two kinds of beer. There's lager and then there's ale. And the lager is the light yellow stuff which doesn't taste of anything. And then ale is the stuff which does taste of something and honestly if I had to say is this a lager or an ale I'd say that was more of an ale because it tastes of something so what why why are you calling this a lager
3: see this this is a case of two people separated by a common language (laughs) lager doesn't have to be light and and tasteless it can have flavor and the lager beers that were made in Brooklyn back in the day when there were 50 breweries in Brooklyn were very richly flavored and richly hopped lager beers. And this beer is based on those lager beers.
0: And I how many other lager beers are there which tasted something? I mean, now I guess there are millions, right? Because everyone and their mother is a brewer.
3: There are many more today. <laughs>
4: yeah. Can I ask a, d- I, I've got a dumb question? Felix, a dumb question? Okay. Dumb, this is um, the dumb question yeah, segment. Yeah. So if if I went to like I had I had a friend in Prague like way back when and like in Prague you go to the local literally local brewer and they they have one beer so I'm wondering if this like the, the fact that there was like one lead strain of beers the lager is partly because. Everyone just had one beer on tap, and they that's all they had. It was like, in other words, it was like a it was the the beer that everyone kind of liked. Nobody hated it. Whereas if they chose that one beer to be something interesting, then some people would hate it. And it was essentially because they only had this one tap. Is that part of the story, or is that my just making that up?
3: Well, I think that's the way it used to be. I mean, uh, it's it's a thrill for me to walk into a place like Union Hall. And see, you know, twenty-five different beers on tap. I mean, that that didn't exist in Brooklyn twenty-five years ago, uh, and that that so was it was, like a, it was a real battle yeah. to bring that to Brooklyn. Uh, but so, uh,
0: so I'm assuming that the heyday of Brooklyn brewing is 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 today. Just just going by this chart, which so. We can all give a little baby round of applause to Steve here. I don't know if he gets applause for this or not, but you recently sold a quarter of your company to Kirin in Japan. That's right. And Brooklyn and and Bloomberg wrote an article about this and it came with a handy chart. I love, I love charts and I have the chart in front of me. It shows the chart goes like this. it's (laughs) It's basically a straight line. It's a straight line, which goes up and to the right. And it shows the number of breweries in the U.S. and five years ago in 2011, it's about 2,000. Um, then in 2012, it goes up to 2,500. 2013, it's 3,000. Um, 2014, 2015, it goes over 4,000. 2016, it's 5,000. We've have we have we've like gone up two and a half times to 5,000 breweries in the past five years. And Jordan is going to get into the economics of this, but like. Right now, there, there can't be a shortage of breweries anywhere, even, not even in Brooklyn. Am I right?
3: Well, I don't know about Georgia. <laughs> uh, we have a uh, representative of the Georgia Craft Brewers Guild. and uh, No, there, there are still a number of states where there are a lot of uh, obstacles to starting a brewery. Uh, and, you know, think about this. Before, uh, say, 18, 1880 there were about 4,000 breweries in America. And the population of America at that time was 40 million people or something like that. Today, there are 5,000 breweries. There are 325 million people in America. I don't think there are too many breweries.
1: <laughs> and
2: I think there are about 7,000 wineries, too. So, so we have a ways
1: to go. I, I want to get to the, 8, the question you didn't get to answer before, which was 25 years ago when you were trying to convince... Union Hall or whoever to to sell yeah. your beer. What was I mean? What was your pitch? How did you convince people yeah. to say, yeah? I mean, it's not even to the drinker, right? It's to the, the the bar that your product was something they could sell. What did you tell them?
3: We we told them we were bringing brewing back to Brooklyn. The last two big breweries had closed in Brooklyn in 1976. So you know, we said we're determined. To bring brewing back to Brooklyn and reestablish this great tradition and we've made this beer based on the great beers that were brewed in Brooklyn back in the day the the bar thank god for the handful of bars that actually took us in uh, because it it was probably one in 25 uh, that we pitched to and the ones that took us in were typically uh, uh, bars that had some imported beer, so they knew something about flavor. Uh, but Felix, you know, thank yeah. God for those uh, those bars. Actually, yeah. right around here, I don't. You probably don't remember McFeely's on on Union uh, Street was one of my first. Uh, Customers And Santa Fe, he, they also own Santa Fe on 7th Avenue. They were one of my first customers. Uh, but it, it was very, very difficult. And I'm not kidding about those lonely nights trying to sell the Bud guy. I mean, you know, Bud guys are out to, you know, throw darts or something. The last thing they want to do is try some, you know, beer that's... Right. Uh, rich and fully flavored and hoppy. Uh, it's like, get this stuff away, you know, give me my Budweiser
2: and my Duds. All right. Yeah, so but i have just to say, you know, that Steve yeah. said in those early days, the shout outs got to go to those independent bar owners for the most yeah. part. And wholesales, we were turned down by wholesalers. They, had, they just didn't know what we were trying to do. And the number of breweries have been going like this for 50 years. And it's like, you mean down, we're that, on, we're on down. the radio now going down, <laughs> going, down. <laughs> going down. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, These guys took a chance on us and said, you know what? We'll we'll give it a shot. We we don't know if it's going to make it, but you're good guys and we'll give it a shot. And without them, there wouldn't be a crap beer. Okay, so this
0: is is the perfect segue into the next segment. But as we go in there, I just want to pick up on something Steve said about the mid-19th century when there were thousands of breweries and many fewer people. Um, Back then, I'm going to assume on the basis of absolutely nothing that the breweries were very local and if you wanted a certain beer you needed to go to where the beer was made and you drink it and then if you left that area you couldn't find that beer anymore and you'd drink someone else's beer. Now you have brands and you just you know you're exporting your beer to Japan and I'm you know congratulations you're big in Japan but this whole thing about beer being associated with a locality like is, is there a terroir of craft beer?
3: I think there there are going to be all different kind of models, business models developed by craft brewers. Many craft brewers starting up today are, are hyper-local. They're really focused on the local community. There are some craft brewers that are national in the U.S. Some are focused only on their state. We happen to have had good fortune, which through just really luck uh, has taken our beer to Europe and Asia and around the world. The name Brooklyn uh, has been an incredible calling card, which is very satisfying to me because in the beginning, many people said to me, "You're really going to call it Brooklyn <laughs> uh, but you know Brooklyn's turned out to be an incredible calling card for us uh, all around the world and you know when you create a brand, uh, it kind of has a life of its own it 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 goes, it takes you places, and uh, I want to sell beer, so I follow my brand, and that's taken us to Scandinavia and, uh, you know, Brazil and Australia and Asia.
4: I feel like when I was in Stockholm, that's all anyone ever drank was Brooklyn Lager. Am I right? We,
3: we sell a lot of beer in Stockholm. When, I, when yeah. I was in
0: Paris, they were obsessed with Brooklyn, which yeah. is one of the reasons I don't like the Parisians, but that's a whole
3: <laughs>
0: a whole other thing. Okay, so we are going to have Jordans like nerding out on the business of um, beer and localities and whether the beer is a brand or a drink. Um
5: Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: Dan is sticking around, and uh, we've got another Massachusetts brewer right here with us. We got Rob Burns from Nightshift Brewing in uh, where Where are you? Where's your hometown, technically? Or? Uh,
6: Everett, Massachusetts. We're just on
1: the fringe of Boston. All right. And so I wanted to have Rob on because we're going to talk about the we're going to talk about the business of brewing in 2016 um, as it now stands. And I want to have one like old-timer, like, big brewer on the craft scene, Dan. Old-timer, Sorry, okay. Dan. <laughs> you Sorry, know, Dan. And Rob's brewery is much newer. It started in 2012. But So I, I, I actually, I want to start second off by just reading a few names. Um, Goose Island, Blue Point Brewing, uh, Ten Barrel, Elysian, Golden Road, Breckenridge, Four Peaks, Devil's Backbone. I'm wondering if anyone in the audience actually, do. You, does anyone have any idea what unites all those <laughs> okay, there are people adding. So yeah, I just heard someone shout "sold out." And these are all breweries that have been bought by Anheuser Busch in Bev. Uh, all former craft breweries bought by AB and Bev. And so we're at this point where m- there are more craft brewers than ever. More people are drinking craft beer than ever. But you've got these huge majors coming in, these the, the big guys like AB InBev, who are now kind of infringing on the scene and trying to buy their, you know, trying to buy up the biggest names. And so, what I'm I'm, I'm kind of curious, and I'm going to basically stop talking after this, because I just want to ask you, as people in the business, is this the best time to be running a craft brewery, or the worst time now that you've got the kind of the 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 InBevs of the world coming for you? Um, start Dan, since you've got the long view.
2: You know, it's the best of times and the worst of times in some ways. We talked earlier that, you know, there's never been higher interest or excitement or or knowledge about craft beer. We're certainly, when you're talking about it versus 30 years ago, is a sea change. But it's gotten incredibly crowded and confusing for people. And I think that's actually part of ABI and others' strategy, which is they really don't want people to know who's independent and who's not independent. And it's always fascinating reading at Harpoon. We became an – 48% 48% employee-owned company two years ago. So that's the course that we've charted. Um, when you read the press releases from these acquisitions and how many times they say independent and we're going to chart the ability to chart our own course, and it's like all they care about is honesty and like just be honest, we got a really big check, and it feels good, and I'm going to the Bahamas or something. But it's not a question of the quality of the beer. It's just the question of being honest, I think, with your consumers and saying this is an anheuser Bush ABI product.
0: Okay, so this is a, a money show. How, how big are the checks? What are, What's
6: the What What are the ratios that the breweries are valued think, on these I days? I think the biggest recorded check was one billion dollars. Woo
2: for Ballast, for ballast Point. Ballast point Lagunitas was a half a billion dollars, five hundred million dollars.
6: Um, yeah, and that was only for fifty percent.
2: Fifty,
1: per, 50 percent. So, so there were some very big numbers. numbers. Wow. Yeah. I mean, is there? What is? What is the calculation there? Do you have any idea? I mean, like when you're cutting a billion-dollar check for a craft brewery, I mean, what what is the business case for that? Can you? I mean, I assume you've been approached at points. You well, know?
2: We were approached by all of them and the private equity guys and the um, with Constellation, they're, they're Corona. They import Corona to the United States. They're they're really trying to build out a what they call a gold network of a distribution across the country, and they wanted to get some other really great brands. So when they go to wholesales, I mean, if you're Corona now already you command a ton of attention, you layer on top of that some other really strong craft brands, all of a sudden there's some wholesalers where in most cities have like three wholesalers by the way, for all of us to get to market. They're making, the wholesalers making more money now off their Corona portfolio than they are off potentially Miller Coors. So when you're going in there and you can say, hey, I want your attention to sell our beer, they get their attention. And if you could pile on some more hot craft brands, you just are going to get more and more attention.
1: Interesting. So Rob, I mean, as someone who's relatively new to the business, I mean, what does it look like? I mean, you're dealing with, you're basically just getting started up at a moment when you've got monsters coming in and trying to take up market share.
6: Yeah, it's definitely, I mean... Like Dan said, it's a good time for us. We wouldn't exist without the pioneers of of Steve and uh, and Dan kind of paving the way. But for one one of our keys to success has been uh, our distribution. We've self distributed all our beers from the beginning because the access to market was such a fragile and scary thing for us. And uh, as of two months ago, we split off that. Business and now we own a separate distribution company to kind of preserve that access to the marketplace. So, for people who don't think about
1: like the tiers of distribution for beer in the U.S. too often, which is I think ninety nine percent. Can can you? I mean, since you now own a distributor, can you just explain how that works? I mean, how does how does the beer get from the brewery to you know my glass, which is now empty? There's the
6: three tier net three tier uh, system, which is basically the supplier, the distributor, and like the retail or bar location. And you need to pass the product through those various tiers in order for uh, it to get to the end consumer. And uh, it was set up so that everyone would have equal access to the market. But what has kind of ended up happening is it's kind of limited access to market. As there's fewer and fewer distributors uh, and more and more brewers, there's a pinch point there. And uh, that's a fragile pinch point. And,
1: And so you dealt with that by starting one. Yep. And, and we self-distribute as well,
2: and we used to distribute through Steve when Brooklyn distributed themselves, and they distributed a lot of other breweries' beer because we we couldn't get access to market. So
1: how I mean, how important has that like kind of business fix been to you know craft beer even being a thing?
2: I think it's been tremendously important, and Rob's Rob's, Rob's new to the game, but runs a great brewery up just outside of Boston. He's figured it out, and. You know, no one cares about our brand like we do. And you're going to get into the regulatory side later. But there are franchise laws that uh, preclude us from moving our brands between wholesalers. So think about that. If you've got your brand and you're selling it to a wholesaler, and they're doing a lousy job, but you can't move your brand, it's a very tough situation to be in. Our our answer to that was, hey, Boston's our crown jewel is still 20, 22 percent of our business we've got to do it ourselves. And I think Rob concluded the same way. Because when you're down in a wholesaler's house and they've got, let's say, Anheuser-Busch, you're maybe 0.2% of their business. And so the idea that they're going to give you the attention you think you need to build your brand doesn't happen that often. So is a distri-
4: distribution issue that we're talking about, is this like your biggest bottleneck for your business? Like, What is the biggest existential threat for your business?
6: Uh, I, I think it's the full gamut. I mean, even just raw material, access to raw materials is a scary thing. Uh, so like hops, hops, even cans, uh, you know, glass. Those things are being bought up in bigger quantities. Wait, wait there's literally not enough glass. Someone, has,
4: <laughs> someone has a corner on glass. For for Is example, it Goldman Sachs
1: for cans.
2: <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. great call. For, for cans,
6: there's only really two manufacturers in the in the yeah. country that make them. Uh, it's Crown and Ball Beverage. Um, when we started canning our product, we were with Crown, and you know, literally one day we get a phone call saying, "You know what." We don't have the capacity to make cans for you anymore, and that was a uh, day after we signed a you know a two hundred and fifty grand uh, purchase on a canning line. So we were like, "Oh shit, what do we?" I don't know if I can say that. <laughs> oh, you're here. absolutely courage. <laughs> really. you say that, yes, yeah. you can. Go for it. Uh, and we panicked because we were we were hinging our whole bi- business on this can uh, format, and uh, we had to pivot really quick. And luckily, we made the right you know sell pitch the other manufacturer so i'm gonna i'm gonna
0: jump back in here and ask one of my stupid questions because i'm i'm again hearing all of this talk about distributors and tiers and brands and formats and like this seems to be the nuts and bolts of the business right if you peel back that little layer of ooh, it's beer which tastes of something you, you, you wind up in a relatively kind of gnarly and not very sexy thing about like help you know building brands and building formats and that kind of thing so where in this does taste and you know like where where does where where does the whole like taste of the beer come in and how and is that important? And because it never used to be, it's right? hugely important. When, no, hugely when we important. were dealing with there. when we were dealing with like yellow fizzy beer, it wasn't important. The only thing that was important was the marketing and the brand. Right. So now there's five thousand things. Again, marketing and brand has to be like very important, right? Because no one can taste five thousand beers and decide which one they like the most. So, but does that mean that taste is not important?
2: No, I again. In, in my opinion, it all starts there. It all starts with the liquid that's in the bottle or the can. You've got to have great beer, or you're not going to be relevant in the marketplace. What what now with five thousand breweries, though? Distinguishing your your brand from those other thousands of breweries is incredibly important. But you part of the way you do that is based on the taste and fla- flavor profile of your beer.
4: To that question, I mean. I've always under, I've always been the pres- under the impression that things taste better out of a can if you drink it dra- straight from a can, than from a bottle. Do you guys agree, or I, is, is that just like, <laughs> is that just me? As- it might be because my mom yeah. drank Miller uh, Lite from a can, and I was just I always associated with a terrible taste. <laughs> That's possible. Tastes like aluminum.
6: Well, there's there's actually a lining in there, so it doesn't actually touch metal. Oh, uh, well, it shouldn't it shouldn't yeah unless they made it the can bad, but. Uh, I, I think that's been a perception that the big beer guys have always created that crappy beer goes into cans and not good craft beer. Um, in a lot of ways, the can format is a better format for beer. It doesn't allow light in in there. It doesn't allow oxygen. Um, it's more portable. It's this, lightweight this is to like, ship. This is like screw tops versus
0: corks in wine, right? The thing which feels cheaper is actually better. Yes, exactly. <laughs> same. It right. is. Now the technology has gotten a lot better with canning. Yeah.
4: yeah. Oh, okay. I was wrong. No, you were right.
2: No, you were right. Then oh, you got you. Right. But you, people used to say it was always better out of a glass, out of a bottle than a can, typically. Right. But You flipped that on its head and said that you th- had heard. So cans. I was right. You were Thank right. You. Thank you, you were right. <laughs> you were ahead of your time.
0: Yet again, Kathy <laughs> O'Neill is right. Yeah, you know, we. It gets a bit boring after a while. <laughs>
4: so, I never get bored. So. <laughs> And Felix, can I have your beer? <laughs> <laughs> Kathy, have your, wait, your beer. Wait, you get the beer?
1: Uh, we're, uh, empty, if we're empty, we're oh, empty wait, over one, here. One
4: quick
0: question. We're empty. Because as a wine drinker, I need to ask this. Does it matter if I'm drinking it straight out of the can, or should I pour it into a glass and then drink it out of the glass? Um, does it matter whether I'm drinking it out of a glass or out of a plastic cup or out of a paper cup? These things really matter if you're drinking wine. I just don't <laughs> well, know don't if they matter. I drink with beer and stop this wine nonsense. <laughs> <laughs>
2: thank you. And that's the difference between wine and beer. We just wouldn't, you know, we don't talk that way in beer. It's like, enjoy the damn beverage, wouldn't you? When we, when we did a
4: rosé special, we talked about wine, and Felix's, like, conclusion was that wine, you enjoy wine more if you have a better story about the wine. And I just, I, at the moment, that moment, I was like, that's not true with beer. I just, uh, enjoy the beer more if you have more
0: beer. <laughs> <laughs> That, that was a fist bump live on stage in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: wait, so it, right now is, you know, if, if you can't find enough cans at this moment, which still boggles my mind, but like, is that because there are so many other crafters coming for them? Or is it because the big guys are now also trying to like push out your market share? Is it or is it all the above? What is it?
6: I, I think it's all of the above. I think that that is a bit of big concern and big concern, and the Brewers Association has also been looking at that of of the big guys trying to purchase all the quantities of like the specialty hops that go in the uh, IPAs to 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 stuff like cans. But we also compete with cans. You know, we compete against soda. We compete against Monster Energy drinks. You know, that kind of crap too. Um, so <laughs> it's it's everything that goes into into the, that type of product.
2: They're huge. Capital-intensive industries, bottles and cans, and and the and we found over the years why we had to buy so much of our equipment from Europe when we started. There were about a hundred breweries in the U.S. Most of them were huge. There was not any kind of an industry that was making equipment for our size brewery. We had to go to Germany, where there were two thousand breweries and they were roughly our size. Here, everything was geared huge. There was one manufacturer of brew house equipment out in Portland, Oregon, so you just couldn't get it. So, and with cans and bottles, like the bottle, there were there. Were, two and a half bottle glass manufacturer companies in the US. And two of them basically were in and out of bankruptcy. So there really was one supplier. So it's been, it hasn't caught up to where it is now. You've had this incredible growth on the number of breweries, but the number of suppliers have just consolidated, gotten bigger and bigger. And they love just doing business with big companies. So
1: I have another another shortage and like two words that really terrify me, hop shortage. This is... (laughs)
6: Yeah, I know, not strikes good, fear into the... Uh, so, so, but,
0: so one of one of Jordan's numbers on the previous episode of Slate Money was that the United States is now the largest grower of hops in yeah. the world. And it's not enough. That's thanks wonderful. to you guys.
1: Yeah. So how, you know, how much should I be worried about that? Is this like limes?
0: Yeah. Uh, because <laughs> there's a lime shortage as well. I worry about that for my corona. That's you corona. Know. So. <laughs>
6: yeah. Uh, I, stop, I, the, I, stop the wine. Stop
2: the
6: Corona. I mean, I think there's kind of two pieces to that to that question. I think first that hops are an agricultural product. There's good harvest years and there's bad harvest years. Yeah, uh, shortages have been caused by bad harvest years, where mildew or drought or over rain has caused problems. Uh, I think generally though, the the brewer or the hop growers are planting more and more of the aromatic varieties that that craft drinkers really like. And they're ripping up some of these older varieties that, that no one really cares because they taste like wood. Um, <laughs> and rather replace them for ones that taste like pineapple. Uh, so I, I, I think from my perspective, there's still plenty of hops out there. When we started, that wasn't necessarily the case. But today, I'm feeling pretty confident. There's a lot of breweries that uh, you, contract bre- uh, your, you contract your hops years in advance. We have pre- ordered hops five years out. Um, yeah. which is a, a oh, wait, crazy and oh, wait, thing. And you did that when you were how old? Yeah. <laughs> 15, no. <laughs> uh,
0: no, I mean, like, how old was the brewery when you started ordering hops? Uh, 2012, right away. Um, like Literally the year you started.
6: Yeah. Be- the first year we started, yeah. we didn't brew any hoppy beer. Um, one of the reasons was we didn't have any access to the good hops to make the IPAs that we wanted to make. So we didn't we got to make like one or two actually that year because Sam Adams sold us some Citra hops which was very kind of them but that was the only way we were able to get our hands on that in our first year um i, don't, I think you should be okay yeah <laughs> the
2: market's respond <laughs> of the hop supply is is i think it's going in the right direction another issue right. is it's a it's a 2 or 3 year cycle to bring hops it's not like just planting grain in the spring and harvesting it in the fall so it's a longer lead time but in the that's why it tends to overswing, but I think now we're entering a pretty
0: good phase, don't you think, Rob? Yeah. So that's a I, I fucking have, relief. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a relief. I, I have one last question here about, about the hops, because one of the things I, I hear from beer people is um, a bit like what happened in, in California was that it came out with all of these massive fruity cabinets, serving on big fruit bomb, highly alcoholic wines, and there was a bit of a backlash. I'm... I'm kind of feeling a backlash against the very hoppy IPAs and everyone's saying that's easy, that's cheap. You should just, you know, the the craft is in the Burgundian Pinot Noirs, you know. The the craft is in the the things where you don't just bury everything under a layer of hops. Is there going to be a an anti-hop backlash? Is that a thing?
6: I I think that it's got a lot of legs on it. I mean, it's, it's the number one style in, in the craft beer segment. I think it's like 25% of craft beers are hoppy products. Uh, you know, I don't totally love that. There's plenty of really amazing beers that isn't hoppy, uh, that doesn't get the, the right attention. It does, but it is what people want, and uh, we'll, we'll continue to make them. <laughs> I got to pay my bills. (laughs) There's so much
2: ferment going on. I mean, golden ale, the Kolsch, that category is growing at almost 50% a year, too. So there are lots of people can find balance if they want it. And certainly the double IPA, the big hop beers are out there. And I think they're absolutely here a
0: A quick, really stupid beer question, since I have like a beer founder, expert. What is the difference between the golden ale and the lager?
2: Ale yeast versus lager yeast. And again, in the U.S. in the day, we would be asked whether our, our, what our whether our beer was a beer or an ale. So even here, it was not even lager versus ale. People didn't know what lager was. But it's a type of yeast, lager's top-fermenting yeast. It was not really identified until the mid-19th century, actually. So prior to that, really, everything was an ale. But it's just different strains of yeast and your stouts, your porters, all the different styles of beer fall under one of those two families.
1: So what it- – Right now in New York, I quieted him down there. Do you yeah, know? Right? Did you see that? You're good at that. Yeah, I, I so thought we were like this is, this is a lot right now in New York. Every bar you go to, there's a lot of sour beer. That's like the hit. There are sour. I love sour beers. Ever like go says whatever. I'm curious. How do you know when like the next what the next beer trend is coming? If someone is like really wants to be on top of like what's a cool beer that's being made, where would our listeners like? be paying attention to is Portland like a, Portland is that it like seriously <laughs> yeah. what's ground zero for awesome beer I guess that's my question besides Boston yeah
6: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't I mean traditionally the ground zero has been Portland Oregon <laughs> Asheville North Carolina California Seattle Seattle yeah. um,
1: so what's ever going on there that's what you want to go to Seattle taste what they're dri- or drink what they're making follow
4: and, the socialists <laughs> 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 yeah I mean so I'm
0: Yes. Socialists
4: make good beer.
3: Yeah.
0: It's
1: the proletariat. Well, <laughs> yep.
3: I and like that. What is
0: the best red state beer?
2: The best red state beer. Man, I'm not going to touch that, that be, one. That might be in Georgia actually. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> there are plenty of them. Yeah. All over the country, thankfully. <laughs>
0: All right, thank okay. you. Okay. Enough of the beer makers. Thank you very much. <laughs>
1: Robbie Burns. <clears throat> and Dan Canary. Thanks so much, guys.
6: You're welcome. Thank you.
4: So, uh, hey guys, uh, we're gonna talk now um, with some lobbyists from the beer, craft beer um, um, industry, and it's gonna be super exciting. I'd like to welcome Nancy Palmer. <laughs> and I'd like to welcome Katie Marisick. <laughs> hey, hey. Guys, can you just quickly tell everyone what you guys do? And I know you're located in Georgia and you're actually in DC, right?
7: I'm Nancy Palmer. I'm the executive director of the Georgia Craft Brewers Guild, which is the state trade uh, organization that represents all the breweries in the state. I also passed my first year sommelier exam nine years ago. Wow. So I am also a wine person that transferred to the beer world.
8: I'm Katie Marisic, and I am the federal affairs manager or the manager of federal affairs, I don't always remember, for the (laughs) Brewers Association. I represent all of the small and independent brewers in the United States. All of them? All of them. I have the best job ever.
4: (laughs) Also, okay, so here's the guiding question for me, guys. Um, And it actually has to do directly with Georgia. So I have a friend in Georgia. I visit my friend, and he knows I love beer. So he brings me to his local growler shop, which is this place. I've never been to anything like it because I grew up in Massachusetts, and I live in New York City, although I've heard they do exist in New York City, but I've never been to one. Growler shop is a place where really cute guys explain beer to you for as long as you want, let you taste things. And then you can buy growlers, which are these like jugs of beer, which they pour and then seal. And you can have like one per day for your entire visit to Atlanta. Um, And I was like, why the fuck aren't there growler shops in Massachusetts and every block of the country? (laughs) And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. I was like, where are my growler shops? So I started looking into it and I found out that the laws around beer are crazy. Can you give me some examples of the craziness? Go ahead. You start Katie. So it started with prohibition.
8: <laughs>
7: <laughs> let's, let's that take was a long the first view. crazy so, law. Prohibition was the first crazy law. Yeah, don't 10, tell us why yet. Right. Just
4: tell us examples because we're going to get right. into why after the examples.
8: So you may or may not know that the majority of, well, that beer and alcohol laws are done on the state level. So we've got some fun stuff. If you're from Pennsylvania, until recently, you have never been able to purchase a beer in anything other than a case form. Uh, if you're in Maine, you can only get a growler filled if the growler is from the brewery that you're buying it from, which completely defeats the entire purpose of growlers. Uh, Let's see. Can you bring your microphone just a little closer? Yes. Thank you. In Georgia,
7: when you walk into a brewery, you cannot buy a beer. You can't buy a pint of beer. You can't buy a six-pack of beer. You can't buy a beer at all. You also can't buy a sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) But you could buy an armadillo or like a T-shirt or Right. So a- in Alabama, if you buy a beer to go, then you have to register your name and address for every purchase. No. Yes.
4: Oh yes. So, so let's contrast what you just said about
0: Georgia. Wait, tell me about Utah. I
7: feel like. <laughs> yeah, we're we're gonna. I feel get, like
4: if that's what you need to do in Maine. <laughs> no, we're gonna get to we're gonna get to Utah, but like, let's oh, wait, compare wait. this to what you can do in wine, for wine in California, like where, like you're in fact you're required to go on a wine tour, and drink wine and and then bike drunkenly to the next vineyard and then drink more wine and get food, right? So this cannot happen for beer. It's very sad.
7: It, certainly the wine industry, I don't know, they, maybe they have better lobbyists. I feel like Katie and I are pretty good, but they, they have that's really... That's not it, that's not it. <laughs> they have really done very well from themselves. And I think some of it's because it's agriculture that they've gotten some preferential treatment, but there's but this idea... But also that only in one state. Well the Georgia wineries would take offense. But yes, (laughs) it's not unreasonable to say they're mostly in one state. Um, In fact, until recently, the state of California had more wineries than breweries in the entire country. Right, And so there's clearly a market for uh, this agriculture that promotes tourism. And I think that beer really has that ability, but the laws are kind of way behind. Wineries have this kind of warm, fuzzy tourist feel, and breweries are clearly very dangerous establishments run by very dangerous people. (laughs)
4: Katie, tell us about Utah.
8: Oh, Utah. Well, I mean, we were talking about it a little bit earlier when you had, you know, Brooklyn Beer, Harpoon on here. These breweries have been around for a long time. But being open since 2012 in our industry, that's that's a long time. That is old. I mean, you're a teenager by now. You're driving your parents nuts. Um, (laughs) Utah is a very interesting state because they only want you to be able to buy alcohol at a certain percentage. So anything that's over 3.2%, it's going to be really bad. You're going to go out. You're going to do horrible things. And that's on draft. You can get stuff in bottles. That's a little bit higher percentage. Now, as more people, younger people are moving to Utah, there's a chance that you might see that change. But for right now, they have one of the more interesting okay. state laws. This
0: is this is stupid question from Felix time. Yes. Um, is it the case that craft beer in general and good beer in general or tasty beer in general has more alcohol in it than the fizzy yellow stuff?
8: Not necessarily. Uh, one of the top growing beers after IPAs, which are delicious, <laughs> is sessionable beer. And sessionable beer tends to have a lower alcohol content, something you can drink a few of. They have them IPA, Cezanne, other forms. Uh, it's something that's changing. It still has good flavor. You don't have to have high alcohol to have a delicious beer by a, craft, or a small independent brewer.
4: Okay. So we've established that states, different states have different rules, but can you explain a little bit of the history of like why that happened? And, and is, I mean, from the example of Utah, it sounds like a moral thing, but then we have the, and the, of course the history of prohibition is all about morality, but as I understand it, it's also about taxation and it's also about market share and protecting the little guy, at least originally. Can you, can one of you try to tackle that?
7: All right, I'll try so uh, part of the reason that we instated prohibition one of the problems that we had was that breweries were opening bars right so brewery X would open bar X and then brewery Y would open bar Y and so you had this proliferation of saloons and bars is a good thing
0: and this is a problem why?
7: because this society was denigrating and men were getting drunk and beer was too cheap and all sorts of terrible things but also women needed to get the right to vote but we needed to do some other things first so we you know had a bit of a movement this
1: is all true this is is (laughs) one of 100%, it's a weird history. So actually,
4: <laughs> so I'm going to
7: jump in and say one of the reasons
4: they inserted middlemen into this process, which we've yes. also called distributors in this conversation, and sometimes are called wholesalers. Yes. One of the reasons we just, we inserted those guys into this whole system was, in fact, to raise the price of beer.
7: Absolutely. And we still do that. We still tax so we for the purposes of that. So we are all paying too much for our beer. Oh, yeah. Because we have, the,
4: <laughs> we have these middlemen. And they charge a fee to basically distribute the beer from the brewery to the stores or to the restaurants. But they also take taxes. Right. And they also just have a monopoly. Explain that system. It's so crazy.
7: It's so crazy. That's why it's hard to explain. But the idea is the brewer sells to the wholesaler who sells to the retailer who sells to you and everybody gets a cut down the way. And anytime anybody gets skipped that's bad because taxes are lowered and beer might be cheaper and God knows what else might happen. Mayhem. Right. Mayhem. Mayhem, Skyfalls, et cetera. So in the state of Georgia, we have like a very strict three tier system. Like there is no mechanism for like the Sweetwater IPA to get to the local grocery store, or than to go through United Distributing to the Kroger grocery store, physical location, it can't go to corporate, it has to go to that one location where it is then sold to the consumer, and that's the only mechanism. You can't go to Sweetwater and buy the beer. Sweetwater can't sell it to Kroger. There's no way around it, right? It all travels downhill. And that's how the taxes get collected and the beer stays expensive.
4: Okay, final question. And then we're going to go to the, the, the magic wand question. Um, the, the final question is, I actually don't care about you guys at all. I don't care about the, the, the breweries. I care about consumer choice, right? And I, I care about the fact that when I go to a restaurant, I want a good selection of craft breweries, brews. That doesn't happen. And that doesn't happen because the one thing we haven't talked about with these wholesale distributors, and it ha- what happens everywhere except Washington D.C., is that the guys who source the beer, the restaurant dudes who source the beer, they have, if they want a specific beer, they have to find the the single distributor who has the rights to distribute that beer. So that's a weird situation. So what actually ends up happening is that restaurant guy just chooses the the dude that has like a big pallet, going back to your point, right, a big pallet of brews.
7: How messed up was that? What do you call that, a monopsony? Well, so it's a monopsony when a brewery like only has one potential customer. So I have breweries in the state of Georgia who have one statewide distributor and they literally cannot sell to anyone else, not their wives, their kids, anyone who walks in the door. Not a single person can this beer be sold to besides the one guy who is their distributor in the entire state of Georgia. And that's it. And they can't get out of that contract. They can't fire that guy. They can't move, but they can be moved without cause. I mean, they can they can be moved. They just can't choose that. So they're basically
4: having people work for them to distribute their beer, but they can't fire those people.
7: Right. So it doesn't end up so much working for them. And it gives
0: them no pricing power, right? Because it's right. T- it's up to the distributor how much the distributor wants to pay is how much they wind up getting.
7: Sure. Yeah. And on the end, again,
4: of the restaurateur or the store, they... They would like to only deal with one distributor or two distributors. They don't want to have to deal with a long list of distributors because it's that many more of human relationships.
7: Right. So you're getting, you're missing, there's kind of two sides, right? So there's one guy that one of my brewers can sell to, but then whatever retailer wants that beer, there's only one person that they can buy from. So they get the monopsony on one side, brewer to, to distributor, and then they get the monopoly on the other side being the only place you can buy that brand for the retailer. And that's where you make a lot of money. A lot of money. So, if I want to
0: make a lot of money, I should just become a distributor in Georgia.
7: Ah, no. A distributor anywhere. You certainly could. But one of your problems is that you would only be able to sign up new brands. You wouldn't necessarily be able to poach anyone who currently exists in the state of Georgia. So, you couldn't sell Budweiser or Yingling or Corona or any of the wines or anything. You'd have to have an entirely new portfolio. Why
1: can't you poach?
7: you would have to have a lot of money. You're talking about like an incredible startup cost. So uh, one distributor could sell the rights from one brand to another distributor. So you could sell the rights for Corona from one person to another person without asking Corona or telling Corona. Um, And you can make money in that transfer but this is Corona like British footballers <laughs> like it's a b- bit like it actually <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> the
0: British yes. footballers just get transferred for vast amounts of money and the footballers themselves never right. see the money no, right.
4: d- that's exactly, right. it's a lot so like distrib- that distrib- distributors are like teams that uh, that have their players and they have like right. Budweiser is like LeBron James <laughs> Right, yeah no no wait LeBron James is my boyfriend I got to give him a better brand than Budweiser anyway last question you guys are lobbyists mm-hmm. so you guys want to change the rules if you had a magic wand, what would the what
8: what rule would you change? I'm real quick gonna go back to the other question that you okay. Just said. Okay, though, you have to answer the magic wand. I definitely question. will, but I don't want the consumers to be downplayed in this situation. Franchise reform is absolutely an issue that should be addressed. But there would not be five thousand small and independent brewers in the United States unless you were out there asking to have that beer. Um, these bars, these restaurants that have started selling this product, they're doing it because people are asking for it. It is a consumer driven situation. So if you're in Georgia and you don't like the fact that you're not able to buy a beer at the brewery, say something. We've got the ability for Nancy. You know, Nancy can tell you how to reach out to people. She can tell you what to do. Write a letter
4: to your congressperson. Yes.
0: (laughs) Do that. Yeah, because that's actually clearly the number them. one most is important
8: crazy. issue facing a congressperson
0: right. today. We are all
1: going to need beer to
0: make yes. it through the next four years. So it is essential.
6: <laughs> yes. Okay,
1: Felix, do not downplay this. We're now building, where's your magic wand? We're building <laughs> a little beer bubble.
8: So. Beer bubble right here. Yeah. Taxes are absolutely an issue. I think that there's a way that we can incentivize breweries continue to grow and also make sure that new ones are starting and people are getting hired. That's a big deal. But we also talked about access to markets and ingredients. I think being able to grow hops and barley, in different regions of the country having things that are disease resistant I think if we could make uh, or if we could encourage the government to put more funding into those types of things that would have a major benefit to a lot of the brewers in the United States So your magic
4: wand is have more investment by the government into hops
8: <laughs> More ingredients equal better beer Okay all right <laughs> what about you
7: Um I it's a it's a difficult one for me uh you know, we have two constitutional amendments. We're, by the nature of our industry, overregulated, right? I mean, we really did it up from the start. And so I think that kind of the second part of the 21st Amendment says, you know, the first part says prohibitions repealed, but the second part says, and states can do whatever they want and that bit has really led to a proliferation of laws that are so wildly different from state to state that brewers have a hard time competing across state lines the rules are so different and there's this kind of arms race of legislation happening in bordering states i kind of wish everyone was just on a level playing field and everyone could do the same things and those things would be myriad except that they, they wouldn't be utah's things right they would be like <laughs> yeah they'd be like colorado things <laughs>
0: So let's all, okay so that's our utopia is um, is that we all move to Colorado which is is it a u- utopia all I can beer. I can get behind <laughs> So so uh, I I was just having beer with a Belgian and no one knows more about beer than Belgians and the Belgian informed me because he was Belgian and knows everything that the reason why Anheuser-Busch is the 8 million pound guerrilla in this space it's because they were a big brewery before prohibition and then they were the only brewery who kept their facilities open during prohibition because they were making root beer and then when prohibition ended they were they were up and running and they had that first mover advantage and somehow that first mover advantage has now lasted for like a century that there seems to be an enormous amount of path dependency going on here um so is this true? Is the entire history of like where we are right now in beer is it all like path dependent to stuff which happened back in the twenties
7: and thirties? So it's kind of true, right? The 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 time in the U.S. history where we had the fewest number of breweries, nineteen eighty. That's the fewest number of breweries we've seen in the history of America, right? So, so the history isn't all kind of, you know, crash at Prohibition, everyone kind of started growing after that. There's, there's been some ups and downs. But when we, when we instated Prohibition, the idea was that there were too many bars, so the idea was to keep breweries from opening bars, which is where we get Tied House, which Katie mentioned. So breweries now can't own bars, and breweries can't talk to bars, and they can't influence bars, and they can't coerce bars, and they can't vaguely be in the vicinity of bars, and things like that. You get tons of rules about this. And so the idea was that if you keep breweries from opening bars, then bars will be independent, and they'll have a wide variety of product, and they'll be locally owned, which is sometimes a rule, and everything will be better for everyone. And it's led to some of those things. You know, retailers do tend to be more independent. But it's also led to this kind of forced distribution system, where these middlemen were meant to kind of re, like, kind of reinforce this, like, we're local and tax is going to be collected, and this is regulated, and these big bad giant brewers from God knows where are going to be kind of negatively influencing, you know, our okay. hometown communities. One,
0: one more, one more econo wonk question here is: um, it strikes me as a wine drinker that beer is cheap because i drink wine and wine is more expensive than beer but i hear a lot of this talk about taxes and stuff and you and what i'm hearing is you know there's a significant price elasticity in beer and that if we only made beer cheaper maybe by collecting fewer taxes or getting rid of a tier of distribution or something like that then we would all be drinking more beer and we would be happier so um a, a quick like poll of the audience here like just vocally like how many of you do you think would drink significantly more beer if it was cheaper and, and how many of you would drink pretty much the same amount of money if it was cheaper but you would save money
1: this is like a public health nightmare right now <laughs> what's
8: what, what's, the, what's the what's the empirical answer to this question i mean rob do you think your beer should be cheaper I don't.
7: Right. I mean, I'm kind of on board with, like, yeah. you guys have already given it up. We know how much you'll pay for a six-pack. Right. <laughs> I don't see any, like, I don't see any reason. Right. We don't need to disintermediate the price. We just, right. you know, someone needs to be making the profit, and it doesn't necessarily need to be the middleman or the government. Maybe it could be the brewers.
0: Okay, guys. So, basically, what these lobbyists are saying is you're going to pay just as much for beer as you always did, and, and, and the promise of cheap beer is, is, is a chimera. We will never achieve it. <laughs>
5: Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: Questions.
1: Hi. Uh, Hi what's na- your name? My name is Brendan. Um, I've been listening to the show for a while. I've actually been binge watching for the l- or binge listening to the show for the last uh, couple of months. Call God. me a masochist or crazy. Yes. God help you. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, on a, another podcast that I listened to, Benjamin Walker's Theory of Everything, there was a two-part episode over the summer called Sud Culture in which they talked about the regulations for what – determines the volume you are allowed to produce before you are no longer considered a microbrewer and you are considered a macrobrewer. And by the same token, uh, luckily enough, when I was growing up, my best friend's dad liked to brew his own beer. So can you talk about what 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 is a microbrewer
0: in the purest sense? Abs- craft brewer versus microbrewer. What is the difference?
8: Absolutely. So you keep saying craft brewer. That's We, we tended to use craft brewer, small and independent brewer. The Brewers Association doesn't define uh, craft beer. We define the craft brewer. So our thing is any uh, independent brewer who produces less than six million barrels of beer a year is considered a craft brewer. Now, six million barrels to some people might seem like a significant amount. Uh, Boston Beer, Yingling Lager are just under three million. Somebody like AB InBev, just in the United States, is producing a hundred million barrels of beer. So to us, there is a very large distinction between what is a craft brewer and what is a macro brewer. And what's a micro brewer?
7: Uh, so technically, a micro brewer generally is considered fewer than fifteen thousand barrels. And then you get into nano brewers, which are microscopic. <laughs> you get into home brewers, which is you know in the basement or the bathtub, et cetera. And That's like one barrel. Yeah. Well, sure, but but it's it's it's. To, to Katie's point, you know, just the Anheuser-Busch uh, plant just north of Atlanta makes about 9.5 million barrels a year. They make more beer in a week than all my brewers in the state of Georgia combined make in a year.
1: Where did the number six million come from? Like, why is that the cutoff?
8: So it was essentially based off of growth of the industry since Prohibition and within the 80s. Uh, when... AB Bev, and Miller were locally owned breweries. They were producing or locally American owned breweries. They were producing uh, around 30 to 45 million barrels of beer a year in the United States. That number is significantly higher. So we just sort of did the math and multiplied it.
1: All right. All right. My name's Cole. I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. Yeah. (laughs) Can't believe you made it up here. (laughs) It's a really cold day to come. It was a very
4: horribly cold day to come here. But um, my question is more, I guess it's more of a general history kind of question. But the fact that there is so much regulation around beer and alcohol in general in America in comparison to other countries, what does that really say about
0: our country? everyone here we this is cole has a great question what what do we know what what does this tell us the the state of beer in america what does this tell us about america uh we're no fun <laughs> we're <more>
6: fun now <laughs> uh i mean you know They always talk about like getting the economy to grow and everything and how do we do that and i think one of the biggest hurdles for small business people is all the regulations all the hoops all the licensing all the permits that you have to go through it's a huge barrier to entry and it's so damn confusing even talking to lawyers they get confused and they don't know and you're like well am i playing by the books am i gonna go to jail next week i i don't know uh so i i think i think you know we got to we got to use common sense and maybe deregulate a little bit and, and and stimulate business that way and have fun. We're working
8: on getting more fun. We're getting there. It's growing. I think regulation is a big thing. Uh, Dan was here earlier. Harpoon, you can tell me if I'm wrong on this, but Harpoon has the first beer license in Massachusetts. That it was just something people weren't doing. Uh, there wasn't necessarily money involved. There was a lot of regulation. And now it's something that they're seeing as the ability to create more jobs. I think people are getting more creative. I think that the recession might have had a little bit to do with it, too. That people are looking for something that they can make, that they can produce, and something they can do here and sell to their friends and do locally.
7: Yeah, building on what Katie said, I think that... Post-prohibition, what, what we came up with is that we needed local control. That there was something kind of dangerous about alcohol. And and I'm not willing to say that there's not, right? It's clearly problematic for some people. And it's I don't mind that it's regulated. But the idea was that you know, local control was the right thing, and that NIMBYism was in fact the kind of moment where people could take control of their own communities and their own lives. And I would say that the craft brewer is the best possible version of that. That we created a system that would that would kind of encourage local control, and that a craft brewer is exactly that. They they invest in their communities. They want to sell products in the side of their communities. They want to invest in their communities. They contribute philanthropically. Like they're wonderful corporate citizens and inside of small communities. And so I think we should be, you know, in some ways say, yeah, the way that we came out of prohibition was actually about local control, so let's get serious about it, and craft breweries are the epitome of that.
0: I'm, I'm, I'm misting up here. <laughs> I, I, I all, There's this wonderful like, romantic notion of small little craft breweries, mom and pop businesses in the heartland, all American. Now selling for a billion dollars a piece. <laughs> Becoming billionaires. That's so the American sure. dream. It is. It is. <laughs> anyway. Okay, I think that's it, people. You've made it to the end. Congratulations. Yeah!
1: Let's all drink more beer.
0: That was fun. So thanks again to our guests, Steve, Dan, Rob, Nancy, and Katie. Thanks to our producers, Verlin Williams and Zach Dynastine. And of course, to the executive producers, Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers. The Panoply Network is at itunes.com panoply. And a huge thank you to Union Hall and their amazing staff for hosting us. Thanks to all of you who are listening right now and who came out, especially those of you who came out to drink with us. Have a great new year, and we'll talk to you in 2017 on Slate Money.